Our scripture passage today is from the gospel according to John, chapter 18, verses 33 to 38. And it may seem a little bit uh, out of place because uh, we are here the Sunday before Advent, before Christmas season begins. And uh, this is a scripture passage um, uh, involving the passion of Christ. This is his trial before Pontius Pilate, um, as is given to us in the Gospel of John. And the reason we, we read that this week is this Sunday, as you may have noticed from the front of the bulletin, is Christ the King Sunday. It's a Sunday that always falls before Advent begins. And this is the Sunday where we celebrate Christ as King. We celebrate the sovereignty of our God, the sovereignty of Christ, and, um, and his reigning over us, and his one day reigning over us here on earth as well. And so this is a passage about Christ as being king, coming before Pontius Pilate and being questioned about being a king, being questioned about who he is, and also leading up to his moment on the cross where he, um, he acts as a true king. So that's the, the reason for this seemingly out of place a scripture passage we're reading today, but is in fact very much in place. Uh, before we read that though, let us uh, pause for a moment of prayer. Good merciful Father, Lord we thank you for the, the word that you have given us, Lord, both the word that dwells within our hearts and the word that we have written here in the pages of scripture. Father, we realize we can understand that none of these things you have revealed to us without your Holy Spirit to guide us and instruct us. So, Father, we pray the breath of that Holy Spirit be upon our hearts and minds now, that as we read, that as we hear, that we would understand your will for us. Father, bless this holy reading of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is the gospel according to John, chapter 18, verses 33 to 38. Listen now to the word of the Lord. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to him and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Thanks be to God. You know, one of the hardest words to understand in English, I mean, really understand what it means in English, I think is the word irony or being ironic. 
Now, that's a word almost all of us think we, we grasp and we know what it is, but we frequently get it wrong. I mean, all the time we call things ironic that are not actually ironic. And we use the word irony for something that isn't irony at all. I mean, it's, it's easy to misunderstand the word or to think we know what it means, but to really know what is truly ironic, it's actually kind of difficult. You see, in the dictionary, it says that something is ironic when there is an incongruity between what you would expect to happen and between what actually happens. So if what really happens is the exact opposite of what you would expect to happen, that is irony. Like an example might be, if you were to take a vitamin for health, which is where you take vitamins for, and the vitamin makes you sick, that, that would be ironic. Vitamin that makes you sick. Or, or you buy a gun for self-defense and then you shoot yourself in the foot with it. That would be ironic. But see, even though I can give you examples of irony, if you give me some, an example of something and tell me, pick out the irony in this, I still might have a hard time deciding what parts are ironic and what isn't. It's real easy to get the word wrong. And the last thing I want to do is to be like Alanis Morissette, who, if y'all remember her, she was a singer in the 90s, and she came out with a song called Ironic. And the funny thing about that song is there's no irony in it. It's a song full of all these situations that none of them are ironic. It's like rain on your wedding day or a free ride when you're already there or some good advice that you just didn't take. It's all kind of coincidental maybe, sometimes unfortunate, but none of it is actually ironic. Unless you consider the fact that she wrote a song called Ironic and there's no irony in it, is that in itself now ironic? That's ironic. I hope I understand it enough today because when I read this passage, I see a lot of irony. A lot of irony in this passage. That's only, of course, if I'm understanding the word wrong, understanding the word correctly, rather, unless I'm pulling an Alanis Morris set of my own. In that case, it will actually be ironic. But here we have Pontius Pilate, a sinful man, who's coming to judge a sinless man. That's certainly what you would not expect, a, a sinful man having the temerity to judge or pass judgment on a sinless man. Or about Christ, he's the judge of the world himself and will one day judge Pontius Pilate is himself being judged by Pontius Pilate. Or Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is being questioned about his authority and asked, are you a king? P Pilate even tries some of his own irony and he asks him, am I a Jew? That's his way of saying, do you have authority even over me? And ironically, the answer is yes, he does. But I think the greatest bit of irony that we have in this passage is when Pontius Pilate looks at Jesus and says, what is truth? Because the great irony of it is, Jesus is the truth. I mean, how would you expect that to happen? To ask the question, go up to the person who is the incarnate truth and ask him, what is truth? That to me is ironic. A lot of people often ask, 
Does God have a sense of humor? I think he does have a sense of humor, but even if you don't think he has a sense of humor, you have to admit God definitely has a sense of irony. And if you look in the Bible, they're full of ironic sayings and, and full of ironic things all throughout it. It tells us, if you want to live, you must die. How unexpected is that? The exact opposite would you expect. You'd expect in order to live, you must just really live, exercise, eat right, take your vitamins, get plenty of sleep. But no, the key to living is not living more. The key to living is actually dying. If you want to become great, that's also the opposite of what you would think it would take to become great. You would think to become great is, is to acquire power, to be smart, to get wealth. Those kinds of things make us great. But no, the Bible is very ironic about this. The way to become great is to become small. That's the path to greatness. And then you have all the irony of Christ himself, the Savior of the world, holiness of God himself and he made friends with some of the most miserable sinners of his time prostitutes tax collectors and here we have the king of heaven and earth who came down not in power but as a servant all very very ironic now some of you have probably experienced the irony of God firsthand if you live long enough and you pay attention, uh, you probably will. Um, I, a pastor of mine, uh, Louis Galway, told a story to me about one, one of the great ironies of God. It was a, uh, a guy he grew up with, this, this man he knew in his hometown, was one of the most devout, devout members of his church, but was also uh, an avid racist. Not the kind of racist that was violent, but just he was the kind of racist that thought there are just some things black people shouldn't be doing, like serving in office or being lawyers and doctors. And you know, you know God was going to get a hold of him eventually. And so what happens in the early 70s, he has a massive heart attack. His life is barely saved. And when he wakes up, finds out the man who saved his life was the first black cardiologist in the state. That is a sense of God's irony. Doing the things that we least expect him to do, or, or, or maybe a better way of putting it, he's doing the things we least want him to do to us. So why do you think it is? Why do you think that God enjoys irony so much? Or if he doesn't enjoy it, why does he use it so much? Why does he employ irony so much in our life? I mean, is he just being contrary? He just wants to put us in our place every now and again just to remind us who's in charge of this universe. Or more likely, we're probably the ones that are contrary, right? We insist on doing things our own way, and so it seems like God is always contradicting us and doing the opposite of what we think God should be doing. Maybe this is how he teaches us. Or maybe it's how he breaks us breaks us in order to remake us again in his image rather than our own. I'll tell you what I think. I think the truth itself contains a good bit of irony. I think you could even say the truth is ironic. 
Now, don't worry, I'm not, I'm not going like, to wax philosophical with you here and go down like this rabbit trail of these pointless inquiries. Um, let me put it this way. God is not going to be contained by human perception or human expectation. Okay, God will not be contained by human perception or human expectation. And that is going to mean the more that we try to figure God out, the more we try to pin him down and get him all figured out so it's suitable and understandable to our minds, the more we do that, the more confused we're going to get. The more that we try to contain God within a human opinion of understanding, the more that we are going to lose sight of who he really is. In Isaiah 55, it says, God tells the prophet, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's how much higher my thoughts are than yours. Saying, I'm just so high you can't even begin to understand, you can't even begin to fathom who I am. And I think we know this, we know it. But it doesn't stop us from trying. It doesn't stop us from trying to always figure him out and to put him in a box of human understanding that's acceptable to us, that's understandable to us. God will not be contained in a box of human understanding, no matter how brilliant the human mind might be. And so when we do that, when we try to do that, we create irony. See, I think that's what happened to Pontius Pilate. That, that was his trouble. He was trying to fit Jesus into a category that he understood. He was called to judge him. And I mean, that's doomed to failure anyway, right? Trying to judge Christ. But to, in order to judge him, Pilate had to understand him or felt like he understood him. So he had to fit in some category that would make sense in Pilate's little mind. And so Pilate saw the glory, he saw the power, and he could probably feel the authority coming off of Christ. And the only thing Pilate's mind can think of is is earthly king. Okay, you must be a king then. We're going to try to make sense that you are trying to make yourself out to be a king. Pilate left with nothing but confusion, trying to figure out Jesus. See, we get confused every time we try to figure out Christ, every time we try to pin him down, because Christ himself is actually a bundle of contradictions. He's, he's got them all over the place. I think the, the man who described it best was a, theolo- a Scottish theologian by the name of James Stewart. This is how he described Jesus. He says, He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of man, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent joy of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so kind or compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot scorching words about sin." A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees to ask how they were expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions. Yet for sheer stark realism, he has all of us self-styled realists soundly beaten. He was the servant of all. 
washing the disciples' feet. Yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another to get away in their mad rush from the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last he himself did not save. There was nothing in history like the union of contrast which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. Try to figure Jesus out. And you always end up with ironies. And to make it worse, you try to follow his commands and you'll, you'll end up with some ironies too. Take for instance that God wants us to be moral and righteous. And in you being moral and righteous, you can actually commit a greater sin than immorality and unrighteousness. You become proud of yourself for being moral and righteous and end up committing the sin of pride. God tells us to hate what is evil and to love what is good. If we do that too much, we end up committing the sin of judging others. God tells us to engage in these rituals like baptism and the Lord's Supper, but trust in them too much and they become empty rituals devoid of meaning. We're told to work hard, to do right, and then see that God rewards us with, with success and with riches and even with wealth and prosperity. And then we hear that God actually favors the poor and the meek. So is it better for me to work for wealth or is it better for me to be poor and meek and lowly? And sometimes I'm feeling like, God, what do you want? Because sometimes I just don't understand it. And the more I try, the more ironies I create. And sometimes I ask, like, God, if you could just write it all out for me. Just all, just get a list of every situation I might be in and then what exactly I have to do so I won't have to get confused about this anymore. Because sometimes it feels like to me that God wants me to get it wrong. Or that he just likes me to be confused. I know I feel that way every time I'm, I'm late somewhere. And it only happens when I'm late. I'll hit every red light. The more I hurry, the more red lights I hit. And the more I hurry, it seems like every Sunday driver in the county gets right in front of me. He's just hanging with his arm out the window of his truck. Just putting along. And there's a double, double lines on beside of me so I can't pass him. Only when I'm late. But of course, if I'm on time, and I've got plenty of time, I could get green lights from here to Myrtle Beach. I wouldn't have to stop one time. I'm not kidding you either. I'd just drive right through. Like God's trying to frustrate me sometimes. Or really what it is is I feel like if I can just make sense of it all, if I could just make sense enough, then, then I would feel better. I would feel like I've got a handle on life. I've got a handle on these expectations that God has for me. And I would just feel better about it. Science fiction writer Frank Herbert once said that the mystery of life is not a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. The mystery of life is not a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. And it makes me think that maybe all these ironies, maybe all of this confusion is me just trying to figure out something that was not meant to be figured out. 
As you know, Jesus doesn't need to be figured out. He needs to be adored. He needs to be loved. We don't have to understand the ways of God. We have to trust Him. Even when they don't make sense. Because the ways of God don't need to be understood. They just need to be obeyed. And our need to make sense of everything, at least my need to make sense of everything, I mean, isn't that just another way of me trying to control life? Looking at life as if it is a problem to be solved. Because you know, the greatest irony about Christ is the irony of his role as our Redeemer, the irony of his role as a Savior. Because you know, he was the one person to walk the earth that had no sin. The only person to walk the earth without sin, yet he was the one person who had to endure the punishment for all the world's sin. He was the blameless son of God, and he is the one that had to suffer and took all the blame for all of my faults and for all of your faults. Christ was the one person who didn't deserve to be punished, yet he was the one that was punished for all. That is irony. It's one that is impossible for the world to understand. The world will look at that and say, not only is it irony, that is a tragic irony. But in truth, it's a beautiful irony. It's a beautiful irony because in that one incomprehensible act, you and I received the redemption for all of our sins. In that one act, we were forgiven for all of our faults. In that one moment, we who deserve the punishment of death were given the gift of eternal life. It's an irony that we call grace. By doing nothing on our own merit, we were given the greatest reward of all. You got to admit, God can be quite ironic sometimes. And I'm so thankful that he is. Because of that, he gave us the unexpected gift of Christ. A king who came to serve. A conqueror who humbled himself unto death. A God who was born in a cave and laid in a manger. And it's that same irony that gives us life from death, that gives us greatness from humility, that even gives us wisdom out of our folly. And it's really not that hard to understand unless you try to understand it too much. If you try to grasp it too hard, it just squeezes right out of your fingers and slips away like you're trying to grasp a bit of water. Instead, it's a truth that you carry in the palm of your hand. You hold it lightly. And you trust it implicitly. Now, the way of Christ doesn't always make sense. The way of Christ may be confusing sometimes, and the way of Christ may even seem foolish. 
But what we find when we trust in him is that these ironies of God point us to the only certainty in the universe. The way, the truth, and the life which is Christ Jesus himself. The word made flesh, the divine made human, the invisible love of God now dwelling with each and every one of us. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.